Hi, my name is Steve Wisher, and I'm the IB World Schools Manager for Australasia at the International Baccalaureate. In this episode, IB leaders gather for a discussion on how the experience of remote learning will impact how students learn in the future. In this episode, we welcome Darlene Fisher, host of our leadership podcast series, and panellists Chris Wright, Director of Education at Woodward Schools UK, James McDonald, Director of the International School of Brussels, and Nick Ulchin, Deputy Head of Campus at United World College, Southeast Asia. My name is Chris Wright. I've been the head of three schools, starting in the Middle East and then ending up in the UK, both international and national prospectus. Currently, I director of education for a group of 48 schools, but also a lead educator with the IB globally. I'm James McDonald, and I'm presently at Brussels, International School of Brussels, where I'm the director. Before that, I've been the um, head of a couple IB schools in Yokohama and NIST in Bangkok, and also worked in the Middle East overseeing a group of schools, including a network of IB schools. My name is Nick Ulchin. I'm currently in Singapore, where I'm deputy head at UWC SCA East Campus. I've been in many schools over the, my years and been with the IB since 1995 in a variety of things, mainly TOK and a bit of mathematics. Thank you. And I'm Darlene Fisher and I'm moderating the conversations today and very happy to have you all here for this. This is the third topic in a series of podcasts. We're exploring the challenges and opportunities provided by the COVID experience that schools have gone through this year. Some of the things in the initial first two, we were looking at the big picture in that instance and saying, so how is education changing and what are the big themes there, both with all the different stakeholders and, and also getting into some of the nitty gritty. What we're going to look at today is really having a look at how learning is changing potentially. What are some of the impacts and what are some of the challenges that have come up and how are schools addressing these? And so the first section, we want to have a look at this question about what's been discovered or experienced about where and when students might learn. How has COVID changed some of these expectations or pushed us to throw out some of the things that we have used traditionally and maybe felt reluctant to change, but now we've had to change so what is it that we're looking at about the where and the when that students might learn? When would like to start? I was interested by something the World Economic Forum actually said because they saw the silver lining in COVID saying it was a catalyst or had the potential to be a catalyst to change centuries old lecture-based approaches to teaching and to learning. And I think this opportunity is about trying to get out of those two organizing principles or those two constructs of time when students actually learn and space where they actually learn. So I think the COVID-19 opportunity is for us to reimagine or reimagine those educational constructs. Indeed, as parents also been sharing in our classrooms, we realize that learning can take place anywhere and actually everywhere. And learning itself is not just confined to the knowledge-based teacher constructed view of learning. So it raises questions about who's actually in charge of that learning where can it actually take place? A question many schools ask is, what role does homework have any longer? Does that have any meaningful impact? Very much challenging. Nick? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think that's absolutely right. And what we've learned is that we can teach students that are anywhere around the world in any time zone. 
synchronously and asynchronously. So I think Chris is absolutely right. And, you know, we've seen things that we might not have said was possible if we were to go back a few years. But, you know, while I think it's absolutely right that this is a catalyst, I'm less keen to play up the sort of discontinuity piece. Because I think a lot of the things that Chris rightly raises that have been brought to the forefront of parents, you know, have been in our minds for a long time, right? I mean, this isn't the first time people have questioned lectures or homework. So I think it's absolutely right that we do that. But I also want to sort of try and look at it systemically because it seems to me that while it's true that it has worked, I think it's also true as a school that's been back for now for three weeks, kids are overwhelmingly delighted to be back and they overwhelmingly tell us that they learn much better in schools. Now, I'm not saying that because they say it, it's necessarily true. You know, we can look at that. We need to be skeptical and we need to be intelligent about how we approach it. But I think the success of what we saw under global lockdown or whatever we want to call it was partly there because parents were at home, because there was a global disruption. I think if most of the world were to return to pre-COVID situation, the idea that those avenues would be open to us now when we don't have parents at home, when the global disruption that was there isn't there, it would just be schools doing this. And critically, when classes hadn't had the benefit of six months of face-to-face contact to build relationships, if we tried to do the same thing without those things, I think it might've been very different. And so I think we must look at this, we must, but it is a systemic social issue. I think there are broader questions in there. And in our excitement that we have a great catalyst to help us do things that we'd like to do, I'm mindful that we don't overhype and oversell what might be possible because the change was much bigger than just schools. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that's coming out of the conversations and and lots of conversations that people are having, it's not an either or. I mean, we've been forced to really address some challenging situations. We're also trying very hard to move back and get the benefit of the face-to-face and at the same time think, so what out of all of those terrible things that were happening is actually worthwhile taking into the future? And I think, you know, everyone being sent to go home to, to do all their learning online is not the answer, but what are the elements that there's maybe more flexibility with that we can take forward? I think that's a great point. I think one thing that this has pushed us to consider is what is the learning? And I know that a lot of schools, as we come back in session in the fall, we're wondering, okay, have there been learning gaps over the last six months in some of the basic literacies or in other areas? And particularly at schools and IV schools that take a holistic view of learning, there's some things that when you have a lockdown and people are having to deliver curriculum online, there's certain types of learning, like independent study skills that can be enhanced through this. But there's other stuff that may not be as good, such as some of the collaboration and some of the opportunities to mix socially. And so that whole notion of what is schools, what can we do best on a school campus, And what other stuff could we do better through other means? I think in some ways, this is a bit of a catalyst for getting a bit deeper into that question of what is the learning? What is the intentionality behind it? And I like what you said about the where and the when and space and time. A traditional school has high constraints around uh, space and time. That's where the kids will sit in a certain space for a certain amount of time, whereas more flexible, this 21st century notion is we loosen those. But not all types of learning is appropriate for all situations. And so what we've seen is a great example of hey, we've got a much wider repertoire of delivering curriculum. And so how are we going to use that when we come back in a very wise and appropriate manner? I love that idea. Can we explore that a little bit? If you have flexibility or you have an awareness that learning can take place that's meaningful and in different places and times, what could you add to the face-to-face experience of school? What do you see as some of the things that could be added that would enrich the learning? 
I think for me, it's raised certain problematic areas. When I look at children, I mean, some children have coped much better and I can navigate this journey between remote learning and classroom learning easier than others. When I think about this, there seems to be three or four things that children need to be able to navigate that, which can have an impact in what we do back in classrooms. And for me, one of the highest ones is igniting curiosity. Children who are curious, who have that inquiry mindset, are much more able to go through the remote and the classroom. So it raises the question for us, now we are back in classrooms, how do we excite that curiosity? How do we make our students inquisitive? How do we get them to take more agency, more wish, more desire to want to do the learning and to be in the driving seat of their own learning as opposed to the passive recipients? So for me, igniting curiosity is a biggie for the classroom, but also for remote learning. I think another issue which came to the fore when they weren't in school, when they were out of the classroom, was the issue of motivation. Some students are more highly motivated to go and do things than others. And it comes down to this issue of how do we both in school and outside school engage students in that? And I think one of the issues is the remote learning gives the opportunity of focusing on authentic learning, real life problem solving learning, which can happen in the classroom too. So instead of just trying to go through a specification, a subject, a unit planning of work, how to think about how do we create those immersive experiences which engage the students in that? And I think that third element for me, which is keeping a clearer focus on the skills they need, not just the skills for how to thrive in a complex world, those communication, citizenship, collaboration tools, but also making sure that the children have the skills to learn how to learn. And some students have much more of those skills than others. So I think as we return to the classroom, equipping with the students with the skills they need to become more agentic, to take control of their learning. You've raised three really good issues and, and I'd like to take the one about what to learn, the skills, and just put that aside for a little bit and move back to the ideas of developing curiosity in that. Can that be encouraged through providing students with the flexibility in their time and space, as it were? High school students would love to start school at midday and move through till seven, perhaps. Is that flexibility going to enable them to be more curious because they're wider awake and more engaged at times that they like to be? Some of those sorts of flexibilities uh, about time and space would, would be interesting to hear. I, mean, I think surely the lesson that we've learned is exactly as Chris said it, which is some people really flourished under remote learning and some people really didn't. And what a pity that we're trying to shoehorn everybody into one or the other. I mean, we really should be able to try and find ways of predicting who would flourish under one and who would flourish under the other, or allowing students who know themselves to make that decision and looking at how we can cater with both. So I think, you know, the move toward flexible is exactly what everybody's talking about now. How can we design something to avoid that time and space, as you say, Darlene? James, would you like to add any? Yeah, just on a different note, and before all this happened, one interesting exercise that we've done with some of our leadership teams was to actually create a two-by-two two matrix with time and space on it, and then have constrained on one corner and more free up on the other side. And this whole notion that if you are using an inquiry-based approach where students have agency and they can control the pace of their learning, and then you have something that where the time and the space is relatively free, and students can learn in that direction. And what we really saw when we moved to a distance learning or more flexible is that for the most part, there was going to be more student agency. Now, it depends how the distance learning program was applied, but we could really get to some of these 
underlying dispositional skills where students have that opportunity to learn in perhaps in different ways where they weren't limited as they might have been before. And I think quite critically, if anything, this really pushed us as educators. And this whole notion that all of us were kind of first year teachers as we went through this and trying to discover how we can best meet the needs of the kids. And I think the verdict is still out. I don't think yet we can say what worked, what didn't. But to carry the points that have been made, we know some students responded much better and some teachers responded much better in these virtual environments. And so I think there's a real opportunity here for getting, again, more nuanced in our approaches to teaching and learning going forward because we've done a big experiment on a global basis. The discussion about agency is something that we'll take up in another podcast further down the track. And I think it's a huge change and challenge and experience from this period of time. But perhaps we focused on what's been discovered about how students can learn on a regular basis. I mean, in the past, it's been to differing extents, perhaps teacher focused, teacher centered. And with the move to remote learning and distance learning, it's really moved very much more focus on students learning and learners. I'm wondering what your ideas would be about how students learn might have been brought to the fore, what different things are coming up? At the beginning, I think many schools really struggled with how to get to that emergency remote learning. And I saw many teachers just trying to replicate what they were doing in a face-to-face situation into an online situation. And soon, you know, a week or two in, coming against the fact we can't do as much, we can't get through as much syllabus, it's just not working. It was becoming a very fat diet. An aha moment in all of that, when we realised you cannot treat technology tools as a pedagogical approach in themselves. You've got to actually think, well, what can these tools do which can enhance the learning and how children learn? And I think we've still got a lot of learning to do about how can we use technology to allow greater collaboration between students on joint projects on how can children construct knowledge together? Because a lot of what happens in schools, we're focusing on what the individual can prove they can do, as opposed to what the team can do and what people can learn from each other. And using all those gifts of social media that children are very good at, how can we segue some of those gifts in how we can use that educationally? I think from a parental point of view, it helps is technology can allow you to get immediate feedback. And we know from the way students learn that feedback is one of the biggest leverages of impact. And if we can give more quick and real time feedback through very low stakes testing and quizzes, and we can almost make it a lot more of a personalized learning experience. So for me, it is those two things. How can we make learning a much more social activity where children can learn together and not just with their own peers, but peers across the world? And how also can we actually make the feedback much more real time and much more personalised? Well, that feeds into the same point, doesn't it? That what we found was that students were amazingly motivated, even when the traditional stick of exams, the motivator that you know people say kids need that to focus was taken away from them. In fact, I've heard teachers say that they saw the kids produce work they never thought they were capable of once they were freed from the fairly narrow constraints of the external syllabuses. And you know, this has been said by many educators over the years, but again, it's now staring us in the face and it links exactly to that point around using technology to do things that we do in the classroom where we can, but maybe technology can do some of them better, as Chris was saying. And I think while the high stakes public exam system has been under criticism for many years now, and with the universities now particularly managing having to find ways of getting by without exams, I think that systemic change 
from higher education may be adding to the voice from schools and they may actually be at a position now where there is a genuine possibility for change when before it was very, very slow. It looks like it might be faster now. So if that's the case, then I think this will be unleashed even more and we'll be able to focus even more on how kids learn unconstrained and towards agency, as has been said. James. Yeah, I think just to pick up on a couple of those points, I think this what we've seen through some of these opportunities we've had to explore different ways of delivering curriculum and learning is that we've really reinforced that notion that, that learning is social. And I think particularly in IB context, we can't divorce the learning from the interactions that people have. The other thing that I can't help but think is that for quite a few years now, we've been saying the direction of travel educationally will be for more remote learning and that at some point schools will no longer be needed. You won't need the campuses per se. And I really think that there's been a, such a shift back in thinking that we miss being around each other. We miss, and Nick, you mentioned this at the outset, it's palpable that the energy when you open back up after being gone for six months, this is where the students want to be. This is where the teachers want to be. They want to be around each other. And that means that this whole direction of travel where we might be delivering learning in future that would be entirely distance and remote, I think has, has largely been contested through this period where we know we're going to need campuses for the foreseeable future because I think that speaks to a very fundamental part of what it means to be human. Thank you, James. I love that. Focus on the idea that learning, you've all mentioned it, is social and it's the connection between the students and the students and the teachers and that community which encourages learning. And I think everyone is going to be and certainly looking forward to be back at school. And so that idea of, of bringing how students learn to a social context as well is really important. Can we then move to that last area that we were looking at? And it's been raised already by the comments that you've made about teachers not being able to cover the content that has been in the past so important and that was required because of external exams. Now, some of those things have been taken away. And so the question is, so what really is an important and what teachers discovered was important under remote learning is quite different from what might be in face to face. So what's important that we take forward? I think for me, it is that's the well-being bit. In the past, well-being sometimes has been conceived as an addition, something to look out for, but it's mainly delivered through a pastoral care system, sometimes seen in the negative of reacting to bullying and dealing with those things. But well-being as a really important part of that social construct of, you know, schools are relational places, as James and Nick have said. Uh, we come together to become human together. And it reminds me of UNESCO did a wonderful report some time ago when it talks about learning the treasure and the four pillars of learning to know, which is fair enough, but also learning to do, which is skills based, but learning to live together and learning to be. That sense of not just the cognitive well-being, but that emotional and psychological well-being. How do we feel about ourselves and how are we nurturing human beings in many sense who can exhibit the learner profile attributes? How are we developing that sort of personhood? But also things, the spiritual well-being, to integrate meaning and purpose, not just getting through content, but what is the meaning and what is the purpose? And very much that social well-being, you know, the sense of belonging, the importance of our relationships, and the importance of some of those ATL skills of communication and social. And so for me, it is around that well-being agenda, which I think is the important part. And there's a sense in which the people who've been trying to teach the skills and qualities of the IB learner profile are all saying, see, I told you for the last couple of decades, 
I'm not sure there's much to add other than the things from my perspective. Maybe I'm limited in my outlook here, but I can't think that anything other than a holistic education has been reinforced massively now. That if there are students in schools who had just a very narrow academic learning, then my guess is that they wouldn't have flourished when that was taken away from them because they find that that was filling their time and they were getting the other bits elsewhere. But the loss of school probably wasn't a big deal then. It's the kids who saw school as all those things as a part of their lives, as a part of them being the people they aspire to be. They're the people who flourished and recognized the context and could reflect on it and see it. So I, I think this is where old wisdom, you know, probably going back a few thousand years and globally, has really come to the fore that it's not about just knowing facts. There's so much more than that. So it's just reinforced everything that I think that has been going around for many decades there. Thank you, James. Your blog outlines a lot of ideas related to this. I guess one thing I'd jump in on too is this whole notion that if we are delivering curriculum online, the more heavily weighted towards content it is, the more easily it lends itself to online delivery. And that I would contend that if you looked around the world at many educational programs at a master's level, quite a few can be delivered online. Whereas I don't know of any online kindergartens. And I think a challenge for the IB, there's four different programs, aren't there? And at the DP level, that can be largely delivered with many courses through an online format, and Pomoja's been doing that for years. But it becomes a real question when you move into the curriculum frameworks of the MYP and the PYP on what the IB's role might be in this future vision of how you might deliver curriculum more remotely, like we've been doing, because a lot of that is determined at a school level, because the content of the curriculum is a decision that's made locally. And so how do you deliver that content and what sort of learning skills are around it and how are you achieving that learner profile in a remote environment? It becomes a really interesting conversation for an organization like the IB if this is the direction of travel at schools and you've got curriculum frameworks that prescribe certain things but leave a lot else open. In other national curriculum systems and again with the DP, there's more content in there where you can agree upon how you might deliver the intended outcomes. Whereas in other frameworks, there's a lot more up in the air and a lot more possibility for student agency, teacher freedom. And that's one of the attractiveness of the IB. But what exactly does that look like in a remote or even more blended environment? I'm not sure, but I think it's exciting. Lots of opportunities for the future. I think it's very interesting that we're talking about to what extent would we take content and put it online? And also the idea that there's so much learning as well as content and a number of teachers, a lot of conversations, particularly in the early months of COVID when schools first went remote, when teachers were saying, this is not working, can't do the content thing. It has to be, I've got to teach them the skills to have the resilience, to learn how to learn themselves, to be able to self-regulate as it were and know what questions to ask. Are we not taking some of those skills conversations and the need for building resilience, the well-being that Chris was talking about, and putting them to be much more the focus of learning, as it were. And the content becomes an easier thing that can be picked up, as it were, in bits and pieces as and where required. But it is those other skills that are very much more socially learned in a social environment. What do you think about the other emphasis on schools and learning? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Darlene. I think you know, those skills are often best learned collaboratively, aren't they? And they probably can be learned remotely in a sense, but they have to be learned collaboratively. I think Chris said right at the start something about finding the technology tools that do enable it because they kind of enable it a bit at the moment, but they're not really the same as standing around a blackboard or a whiteboard and working together and each chipping in and working collaboratively. You, know, you have these online spaces which are reasonable, but they're not yet at the stage where they're there. I was talking to one of our parents who actually remotely, his business now has holograms around the desk 
and he says it's pretty much as good as being there you know really you know that they're not but after you've been in it for a while you know you're looking at people around a room and you're reading people's body language and the microphones are good enough that you're hearing the intonation in people's voices so you know if we want to get remote learning to work in a good sense and maybe that technology is not as far away as we think i'd love to think that and that would be interesting it still wouldn't give us everything there is something about the smell of a classroom but it's a step in the right direction but I want to go back to something that I think we've all alluded to here, which is that, that business of personalized learning. That's a word that I worry about a little bit because I think it's got many interpretations. So if a personalized learning means meeting the needs of a kid where they are and helping them with their next steps, of course, that's exactly what we want. But I have this bit of a worry that the ed tech movement to introduce technology in a lot of places is using the word personalized to mean actually sort of a move towards actually almost the opposite of that. If you were to take a heavily focused Okay, let me, let's pick a subject, maths, because it can be broken down into subjects. So, you know, student does an online maths question, they get it wrong. There's an AI looking at what the mistake they made and it feeds them the question to fix it. They get that right, so it gives them the next thing. Now, in a way, that sounds great, like a person who's responding. But in fact, it's based on a very sort of prescribed curriculum that is forcing the kid through a bit of a sausage factory. And yes, it gives them personalized feedback. But I think that is a dangerous use of the word personalization. And in fact, it's almost the very opposite of the kind of personalization I want. It's not saying, where's the kid? What do they need? It's saying, here's my curriculum. How do I make sure the kid gets out the other end of it? So I just see in my inbox so many people trying to sell systems. And you know, I'm not saying there's no place for learning those skills. But I worry that what we'll end up doing is doing the equivalent of you know, going to a hamburger shop and saying, personalize your hamburger. Do you want cucumber or lettuce? You know, it's, at the end of the day, it's still a burger with beef. So, you know, I think we need to be careful around personalization. And I've seen things that I'm pretty skeptical about. And I just want to ask for to retain the really holistic, personal sense of personalization that I think is so important. Thank you. Chris? Two things I'd like to just offer towards the end is one a positive and one's a challenge. One of the things the IB is doing quite a lot of at the moment is, certainly for the adult learners, for our teachers, is looking at facilitated self-paced workshops. And the idea of that for students, that students can navigate their way through material in a self-paced way and facilitate it, I think is part of the anecdote to what you're saying there. It's not the prescription, it's taking more control of how you do it. Some children will build in a lot more reflection time than others. Some people will need more facilitated support than others. We would normally call them interventions in classrooms. But I think there's something in developing a lot more self-paced work which is heavily supported as well for some students. The challenge, I think, for the IB is one of the standards, the ITS, you know, the International Society of Technology and Education Standards, looks at how children and adults can become global collaborators. And I would challenge the IB on this one that, you know, 5,000 plus schools all the way around the world with an exciting mission of making that world a better and more peaceful place how are we going to use technology and the opportunities we've got for them to globally collaborate on that mission statement? Because that's where significant change could happen if we change that paradigm, as opposed to individual schools trying to meet that mission statement themselves. What about a global community helping students to globally collaborate to fulfill that mission? I think just to go back to Darlene, that question you had about the content versus some of the skills that are around it and that notion, and it's been brought up before about personalization. I, I can see how so much of this comes together through that umbrella of student agency and the more control the students have over their learning. And we have seen through a different lens over the last six months, 
how possibly we could be experimenting with turning even more over to the students, allowing them, you know, the self-paced that was just mentioned. And, and in other ways, that, that relationship with time and space that we've always kind of had pretty tight control over as teachers with timetables and, and everything else. And we really have to question if that's the right approach going forward. I think a lot of this is developmentally appropriate for different age groups, but we really have had an opportunity here to test some things that we wouldn't have been able to test if we didn't have a pandemic. And it, it's a very curious thing to see what happens on the level of the individual learner at the classroom, at the school, and at places like the IB and what we might take from this because I guess a cautionary note would be we're all looking forward to getting some sort of vaccine and an end to this pandemic and we're likely to all to rush back to just how we were before and having that leadership if you like to consider how we might be able to do things better than we were doing before even in the face of something so tragic as a global pandemic i think in a lot of ways what education has been asking for in terms of disruption for a long time and here we sit on the cusp of coming back through something and what are we going to do about it that's a big question for all of us Absolutely. I think it's a, an interesting situation that when clearly there's no absolutes, there's no guarantees, there's no clear, oh, this is number one. It's going to be an ongoing conversation on a number of topics. Anyone like to add something before we come to a close? I kind of think that when we look at what's changing, I was at a meeting recently where people were saying everything's changed, everything's changed. I'm kind of curious to ask kids, really. Children are the same. And it may be that we weren't meeting their needs so well before, and now we can meet them better. And that's great. But there is a sense in that around, no, nothing's changed. That's the point. The, the kids are the same. And I hear people saying we don't need bricks and mortar. And I think just it's that piece around, there's a lot that stayed the same. We know all the sort of social piece, the motivation, the age-appropriate nature. There is a lot of wisdom that we can't throw out. I'm not sure exactly which bits we need to and which not. But I think when you said, you know, we're not looking to change absolutely everything, I think there is truth in that. The trouble is, of course, we don't know which bits, but nevertheless, it's not a wholesale everything out the window because there's a lot of great stuff that goes on. Just really mindful that we don't lose that. No, it can't be an either or. It can't be that either was perfect or better. It's really a case of us doing what we have to do, and that is reflecting on this experience, not just going through it, but reflecting on it with some deep questions to try and think, well, what really can we take forward? And if universities are reconsidering what they use by way of deciding on who goes further in education, and if they become more flexible, then does that not allow much more flexibility, even in those last few years, which are currently so content-driven, Perhaps there can be way more flexibility along the lines of internal structures and times and space and content with a focus on the skills that are going to help students to move forward into the future. So again, there's more questions than answers I think we've come up with today, but can I thank you all hugely for your contributions to the conversation and really do appreciate you giving up your time for this conversation. Thank you so much and look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to our podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to check out more episodes of IB Voices on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next time for more insights from our IB community.